Welcome to the Weight Loss for Women podcast, a place where we share everything you need to know about restoring your metabolism so you can eat more, train less, and lose weight in a healthy and sustainable way. I'm Kitty Bloomfield, co-founder of New Strength and Saturay, your one-stop shop for metabolically supportive food supplements, skincare, which is coming out very, very soon. We're hoping to release it in the end of February. And we're now formulating makeup, which is super, super exciting. So I'm so pumped about this episode because I am joined by Dr. Ray Pete and our awesome friend, Kate Deering, who I'm sure you all know by now. She's the author of How to Heal Your Metabolism, and she's just awesome. We love her. Um, I've done numerous podcasts with Kate Um So I highly recommend you go back and listen to all of those full of great information. And I've done a couple of other podcasts with Ray, one with Ray and Kate on vitamin D um, and minerals. And then the other one was the first one I did with him with Emma Skarakis, my business partner in Saturay. And that was all things metabolism and dieting. It was just a sort of, we talked about a bit of everything episode, but it's actually the most downloaded episode on the podcast ever. And it is just so jam-packed with information. So if you haven't listened to his other two podcasts, I recommend that you do. But in this one, we talk about the estrogen industry, the magic of progesterone, and the importance of thyroid hormones. So basically, we're just doing a deep dive into all things um, hormones. So it's a two-hour episode, uh, and it is just so jam-packed with amazing information. So I recommend that you grab a pen and paper and take notes and you also grab a snack because we all know how important it is to keep um, that blood sugar balance. So, you know, as always, please um, take a screenshot and share your biggest takeaways on Instagram stories and tag me at K-I-T-T-Y-B-L-O-M-F-I-E-L-D and please give us a rating. So that just helps to, I guess, spread the word, um, you know, and get more people listening to the podcast. Let's get into it. Hi, Ray. Hi, Kate. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having us again. Super excited to to chat with Ray again. Yeah, I know. We had such great feedback from both the podcasts that we've done so far. And Kate and I just thought it would be so great to get Ray on again and just talk about all things hormones. Um, And Kate, as usual, has written out a very comprehensive and thorough list of questions for Ray. So, you know, this is going to be a jam-packed podcast. So I would get a snack and get a pen and paper uh, because I'm sure you'll learn heaps. So I'm just going to kick things off, Kate, with the first question. Um, So what are steroidal hormones and how do they work in the body? Uh, um, A steroid is a very stable uh, organic molecule, uh, astronomers have found that probably it's the most common single type of molecule in the universe. It's so stable, you can find it in interstellar dust. But anyway, the stability of it means that it's a convenient molecule for organisms to deal with, and that on the basic shape of these four four attached loops, the ends, the two ends, and a couple of the side 
group, groups of the molecule are, are able to change cell functions in a way depending on where the electrons go in this stable multi-ring molecule. And the fact that it is this more or less flat series of rings attached to each other that made people interested in the other spontaneous forms of three or four or five rings linked together. And they found that soot, the black material, condensed from a candle, for example, that the blackness is because of the electronic an excess of electrons circulating in the molecule cause it to absorb light. But at the same time, these free electrons in this series of circular benzene ring-like molecules causes soot. They knew it was carcinogenic for, since the 18th century. But uh, uh, people started seeing the similarity in structure between uh, estrogen and the soot molecules uh, and uh, started realizing that the carcinogenicity of estrogen was very close to the carcinogenicity of soot. And so uh, they were making extracts. Uh, you uh, thousands of different uh, molecular arrangements uh, of the uh, uh, aromatic, cyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. Uh, and they were testing those, and they were all to some extent carcinogenic and estrogenic and pro inflammatory uh, and uh, associated with causing pain. Uh, and one branch of uh, the, the study of those was to modify them slightly and use them as anti-inflammatory drugs. Uh, and uh, tamoxifen is one of the, uh, its history started out trying to make an anti-inflammatory, uh, uh, anti-estrogen and anti-soot molecule, uh, but it turned out to be more useful as an anti-estrogen uh, than as the anti-inflammatory. But it, it's from the 1930s through the 40s, uh, this was a big uh, focus of uh, organic chemistry, uh, and uh, especially a couple of French uh, researchers identified the, the way the shape of the molecule focuses the electrons in particular areas. And so you can predict from the shape of the molecule whether it's going to be an irritant, a pro-inflammatory, an estrogen, or a carcinogen. And the degree of each one, there will be a little overlapping, but different molecules will have more estrogen function uh, in relation to the car carcinogenic function. Uh, uh, and the uh, 
the fact that it was so easy to produce thousands of different estrogenic molecules. Uh, one, one group uh, found that diethyl stilvestrol, uh, uh, essentially two rings connected uh, uh, by a, a short chain, uh, was a very powerful estrogen and not quite so carcinogenic. And that became one of the first estrogens of commerce. And it was still being promoted as a female hormone. Estrogen had been the first ovarian hormone to be crystallized. And it turned out that the quantity of progesterone in the ovary was hundreds of times greater than the estrogen content, but still they chose to go with a very cheap, easy-to-make molecule and call it the female hormone. And the pressure of wanting to promote their their product uh, changed the uh, FDA's uh, attitude uh, and uh, the, the major journals uh, during this period uh, in the early 1940s. Uh, estrogen was claimed to be uh, therapeutic for hundreds of different diseases and problems. Uh, JAMA alone uh, published articles uh, advocating estrogen to treat more than 200 uh, uh, different diseases. Uh, uh, and uh, over the years, that list uh, went from something more than 200, uh, gradually smaller and smaller uh, as uh, people realized that uh, it was causing more harm than good. But uh, for uh, quite a few years, Harvard uh, joined in promoting it as, uh, uh, since it's a female hormone, so-called, uh, they said uh, reproduction is the main female function. Uh, and so uh, estrogen must uh, maintain pregnancy and, and prevent miscarriage. Uh, so uh, they were advocating it and selling it uh, uh, to, to immense profits uh, to pregnant women uh, with the claim that it was preventing miscarriage. But uh, already uh, by the late 1930s, uh, abortion and miscarriage uh, was one of the most obvious features of all of these estrogenic molecules. Uh, okay, so I'm just going to kind of summarize, because I think we, I, I think you're, you're referencing the DES estrogen um, therapies that used to be given back in the 1940s, correct, to treat miscarriages. And a lot of women received the DES therapies, which ultimately found out that they were toxic and were not helping and were actually probably creating more issues than anything. That's, that's what we're, you're referencing, correct, right now, when we're talking about all, all these the beginning of the estrogen therapy world? Uh, uh, yeah, everything about it was crooked right from the time the pharmaceutical industry 
uh, began promoting it. Right. They said black was white, death, right. death was life. <laughs> yes. So it, I guess in, in the context of the hormones, Ray is definitely just talking about estrogen right now. I'm talking about essentially that estrogen in itself and how it's being utilized in the medical industry has never had any sort of good foundation that everything they thought it was doing, it didn't do. In fact, it was actually do, being more harmful. And in today, and so we're just going to go off some tangents because this is so interesting. Um, so today, Ray, because obviously medical industries still promote estrogen therapy on, on so many different levels. Um, is it at all helping anyone on any amount? Because obviously they, they say, well, now we have the dose, right? So we were doing too much before the end. So now it's, we, some women do need estrogen. So is that true? It's like radiation. When they started using x-rays, uh, they were wildly, uh, uh, basically, slowly or, or not so slowly killing people. But every few years, they would say, well, we've solved that problem. Your arm isn't going to rot off next week. We've reduced the dose to where it's safe. But every 10 years or so, the dose is radically reduced. It's the same with S. Uh, saying that now we've solved the problem of, of uh, strokes, heart attacks, uh, 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 lung uh, diseases, uh, endometriosis, uh, fibrosis, fibroids of the uterus. Uh, we've reduced the dose so much that those aren't a problem. But it's the same as radiation, even a small amount out of the, the right context is very dangerous. And the right context is that the two important qualities distinguishing the, the real feminizing hormone progesterone from estrogen, which happens to also be the male reproductive hormone in the sense of it increases libido and is involved in sperm production and so on. So, okay, so just, okay, I'm sorry, go ahead, go ahead. The essential property is that it's excitatory and progesterone is calming and stabilizing. And so, so the body, when it wants to start a, a, a new cycle of life, <clears throat> and especially when it's under stress, it produces estrogen to excite cell development and preparation for making a new organism. And so for a few hours in the monthly cycle, for a few hours, <clears throat> estrogen should dominate to start the production of new cells in the uterus, in the breast, in the pituitary, and those should be where its action is concentrated. If something interferes with the anti-progesterone, anti-estrogen effect of progesterone, 
then uh, that effective estrogen uh, takes place in places where it shouldn't, uh, such as the lungs, <clears throat> are promoting lung cancer or kidney cancer uh, or uh, especially tumors uh, of the organs that it should be activating uh, e either prolonged or excessive uh, exposure to estrogen uh, is uh, extremely dangerous. Uh, a young animal uh, given the normal amount of estrogen that should be present, if it's given that amount continuously instead of pulse at intervals, Continuous exposure to that same small normal amount creates cancer and fibrosis in every tissue of the body. It's the failure to be interrupted by progesterone that makes estrogen so toxic. And so so just kind of wind back, right? Because obviously we know both men and women have estrogen. So just so people understand, what is the purpose of estrogen in the female body and also in the male body? In the male body, it's to excite, mostly to excite libido and, and preparation for mating. In the female, it does that in a more specific way, enlarging the breasts and uterus uh, the, the simplest test uh, for a substance uh, being estrogenic is to see if the weight of the uterus uh, quickly enlarges. Uh, within hours of exposure, uh, the, the uterus expands. Uh, but the same effect uh, occurs on a smaller scale in the brain and pituitary. So for, so for women, obviously, because they have a cycle and they, have, they cycle with estrogen and progesterone, um, can you explain when estrogen is the highest in a woman's cycle and what, what it's doing in her cycle? It's most active <clears throat> at the time of ovulation because although it becomes higher in the middle of the luteal phase, uh, at the time of ovulation, progesterone uh, starts to be produced in increasingly large amounts. Uh, so even though estrogen rises uh, for several days after ovulation, the even greater rise of progesterone is taking over and uh, preparing for a surviving pregnancy. If the uh, progesterone fails to be produced in a high enough amount, uh, the uh, luteal defect of uh, low, low progesterone uh, causes uh, uh, menstruation. Uh, the, the estrogen is the agent uh, promoting menstruation, which is uh, effectively an early miscarriage. Right. Uh, and so the, the, the tendency to miscarry uh, uh, is uh, uh, the same thing that shows up any time during the life cycle. Uh, the, the 
premenstrual syndrome uh, goes with the progesterone deficiency uh, and the tendency to miscarry uh, and uh, uh, any time later in life, uh, that same thing contributes to uh, all of the degenerative processes. Uh, the constant excitation of the different tissues, uh, uterus, breasts, uh, lungs, kidneys, and so on, uh, all of those uh, start uh, forming a, a fibrotic matrix, and uh, that's an early step uh, of the carcinogenic process. Okay, so with women, obviously it's normal to have increased estrogen, certainly during puberty and as they cycle. Um, first explain kind of, you know, where is estrogen produced and where are all the places in a woman that estrogen is produced and then also where are they uh, produced in men? Uh, uh, well, the, the studies, uh, the very early studies, concluded that the ovaries were the source. Uh, and so uh, for 80 years or so, uh, the uh, assumption has been, uh, it's part of a, a huge ideology uh, of uh, single sources, single effects, uh, uh, correcting single problems and so on. Uh, but uh, for, for 80 years, the assumption was that if you uh, took out uh, a woman's ovaries or, or an experimental animal's ovaries, uh, that meant that, that they're estrogen deficient. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, I've only seen one or two groups that decided to actually measure in animals what the estrogen level uh, was following the removal of the ovaries. Uh, and uh, for the first week, uh, the estrogen in the blood decreased. But after a week, it, it returned uh, to the normal level without ovaries. Uh, and uh, one group uh, was measuring the uh, uh, milligrams or micrograms of uh, estrogen produced uh, per minute by the ovaries. And uh, as a control, uh, they were also uh, measuring the estrogen coming out of the veins uh, of an arm. Uh, and it turned out that the arm was producing just as much estrogen as the ovary. So uh, when you say the arm, it, where, what are you referencing? Uh, like uh, They were using the right arm of a monkey. Okay, so was the estrogen being produced in the fat, in the muscle? Where was Both. the estrogen? Okay. Uh, even in the bone. Okay. And, uh, the osteoporotic bone is full of aromatase, making estrogen. Uh, 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 all of these odd facts aren't so odd if you see that uh, stress increases uh, aromatase that not only increases the uh, formation of the basic molecule, but the same conditions that lead to the uh, produ production of uh, estrogen from any androgen 
uh, the, the same process uh, also tends to uh, uh, change the low activity estrone uh, to the high activity uh, uh, estradiol uh, and uh, to, to uh, eliminate the enzymes that would detoxify uh, the estrogen molecule. Uh, so uh, this experience of stress by a cell increases the quantity of estrogen and it's the intensity of its chemical activity on the cells. And, so wait, I, ha I have like 17 questions all from what you were just saying. Because so we have a lot to kind of unpack there. One, I just kind of want to say, so what you're saying is estrogen is not only produced obviously in the ovaries, but also it can be produced in the fat, in the muscle, in the bone. Pretty much, are you saying it can be pretty much produced anywhere if the body's under stress? Uh, yeah, the skin is another nature source. Okay. So under, obviously, they realized this after they removed ovaries from, was it a monkey or a rat? Uh, uh, well, uh, rats uh, were, were the, uh, where they decided to measure the okay. actual estrogen after taking the ovaries out. Okay, so essentially we realized after removing ovaries, they were producing just as much estrogen as they were before they had their, I mean, when they had their ovaries. So obviously that we can produce estrogen without ovaries. So what exactly then is happening to women postmenopausal and they're going to their doctor and their doctor's doing a blood lab on them and they're saying, hey, your estrogen is low we're going to put you on some estrogen replacement therapy or hormone replacement. What, A, what are they measuring? Um, Cause obviously we have met, you know, not just there, there's three different metabolites of estrogen, the, the estrone, estradiol and estriol. Are, are they just not measuring the right one or, or exactly what is happening there that women are being told they need estrogen postmenopausal? Uh, one problem is that they measured in the serum rather than the whole blood. Uh, and uh, being uh, fairly oil soluble, uh, the steroids tend to stay inside cells, even red blood cells. Uh, uh, progesterone, the same problem. Uh, they throw away most of the blood uh, components, most of the progesterone and estrogen, uh, and then uh, measure what's left over, which is a minor part of the uh, blood uh, steroid content, but uh, the rest of the body, uh, the same thing exists. Uh, the, the steroids tend to uh, stay inside cells. Uh, that's where they're active. Uh, and when your progesterone level declines, uh, all of those enzymes that promote estrogen uh, the things that remove the water-soluble detoxifying uh, units such as uh, sulfuric acid and glucuronic acid, uh, those are uh, the product of detoxifying estrogen. If your progesterone uh, is low, uh, those enzymes uh, fail to detoxify it. And, uh, if your, if your progesterone is low, uh, the uh, 
hydroxylase and oxidase uh, uh, enzymes and uh, the, the, uh, they reduce turning estrone into estradiol and uh, ending eventually uh, estriol uh, uh, can enter that same process and become estradiol. So, Ray, just for the listener, can you kind of differentiate between the three different estrogens and which one is more potent um, and which one is most blood lab, what, what most doctors are measuring? Can you kind of differentiate what each one is and, and yeah, estra- talk about them? Estradiol is considered to be about 10 times as potent as estrone, but really that depends on your general health and amount of progesterone. And it's about three or four times as active as estriol. But they're all interchangeable. It just takes a bigger dose of either estrone or estriol to have exactly the same effect as estradiol. So my understanding is that while in your in your youth it, you have more estradiol, and then I, I was under the understanding as, as as you go through menopause, it's estrone that is more potent in your system, or is that not correct? Um, it, it increases with aging, but the the measurements have all been done in blood which have very little to do with the actual tissue exposure to the effect of estrogen because with aging, your progesterone goes down and the estrogen increasingly stays inside cells and intensifies its activity. When you seem to have a disappearance of estrogen at menopause, if you add progesterone, suddenly you can measure a normal amount of estrogen as it's leaving the inside of the cells, being detoxified and carried to the kidneys for excretion. That shows the progesterone is able to mobilize it out of your cells in a a detoxified form. Okay. So essentially what you're saying is like during youth, women are producing obviously estrogen and then they're also producing progesterone because they're ovulating and having a cycle. And that that increased amount of progesterone is helping the the estrogen stay in the blood so that it's more measurable. That's why obviously in your youth, you have higher amount. And then as they age and you produce less progesterone, then the estrogen tends to stay in the tissue. And on a blood lab, it obviously will show you have none when in fact you might have quite a bit, but because you are lacking in progesterone, it shows that you are obviously going to be low in both. Is that kind of what happens? Uh, Around the age of 35 to 38, the measurable estrogen is at its peak. And that's an age at which progesterone begins to decline. Uh, There's still some monthly progesterone 
coming out of the ovaries uh, up until uh, the first missed period. Uh, at the first missed period, uh, the, the, there's absolutely no progesterone uh, production noticeable uh, from the ovaries. And that means that's when the, the estrogens, which were uh, already at their peak in the late 30s, uh, it suddenly fails to be neutralized by the estrogen uh, and it fails to be mobilized into the bloodstream. So at the approaching menopause and following it, uh, the, the worse the symptoms are, uh, the, the lower the progesterone is, but the more active the effects uh, of estrogen are. The, the same women who are uh, tending to miscarry uh, and to have uh, bad PMS symptoms uh, are generally the ones that have the problem menopause. Uh, they're, they're the chronically uh, low progesterone, high estrogen people. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the, the same people that sold the, the DES to uh, protect pregnancy, uh, uh, they uh, found uh, preventing uh, or uh, relieving menopause uh, was uh, at the next best place to market estrogen. Uh, and uh, so they are the ones that created the idea uh, that uh, menopause uh, constitutes a, uh, an estrogen deficient state. Uh, the, the, there's, uh, bef before the pharmaceutical industry uh, caught on to uh, estrogen, uh, uh, the, the old age condition uh, uh, was shown to be a, a, a state of residual unopposed estrogen activity. The, the whole uh, doctrine of menopause uh, as estrogen deficiency uh, uh, can, can be traced uh, to the uh, marketing of estrogen. So essentially the, the marketing, and he's, like I said, we, we've been kind of talking about the DES. It's a, it's a mouthful to pronounce that word. Um, so we'll refer to it as DES, but it was a synthetic female uh, form of estrogen back in the 1940s that was used for miscarriages and premature labor and complications during pregnancy. And then they realized it didn't do any of those things. And they ended up, it actually was making things worse. And not only that, that they have since studied a lot of these women that have, were on DES during the, that 30 years of time period that we used it. And now they're showing that their children are having all sorts of issues. Even the children of children of DES um, women are showing that they have a lot of different symptoms and issues related to taking this synthetic estrogen. Uh, yeah, um, anything that happens during gestation changes your whole developmental course and uh, your developmental course involves all, all kinds of epigenetic so-called processes that can be passed on for generations. Right. So do you think, just going off on this other tangent, um, all these women that are on fertility medications and fertility pills and fertility, as do you think that's going to have an effect on these children that were born with fertility medications? Uh, born with what? 
that were, were that were basically being produced you, be, either with IVF or some sort of medications that were used. Oh, oh uh, yeah, uh, they've already uh, demonstrated that there are uh, differences depending on how the fertilization is done. Uh, uh, the, the whole process, uh, uh, other than the normal uh, in vivo fertilization, everything that happens uh, changes at the fate of the organism in some way. Right. Right. So I, I think that we kind of just wanted to touch on this because uh, DES was used, I think, for 30 years. And I think after about 10, they realized it wasn't doing what they said it was supposed to be doing, but they continued to prescribe it for decades afterwards. And they don't anymore, obviously, because it's toxic. But, um, you know, when, when things get caught up into the medical industry, sometimes um, the human best they, interests aren't <laughs> put into they, effect. They continue to use it in men to treat prostate cancer. And that's an interesting sideline that when the prostate-specific androgen came on the market as a way to diagnose developing prostate cancer, suddenly the number of cases diagnosed increased tremendously. And uh, within uh, uh, that year and the following year, uh, the deaths from prostate cancer increased by about 50%, uh, showing that uh, diagnosing uh, uh, the prostate cancer uh, had a very close connection to dying uh, from prostate cancer. Uh, and uh, after uh, uh, the late uh, 1990s, uh, a lot of doctors advocated watchful waiting, not treating uh, prostate cancer uh, because of, uh, someone did a survey at a convention of specialists. Uh, they were asked what they would do if they had a diagnosis of prostate cancer. And, uh, the, they were treating it primarily with uh, DES, huge doses. Uh, and uh, most of the specialists in treating prostate cancer with estrogen said they would do nothing if it was their own case. Uh, but uh, uh, it took a while uh, for, for them to drop the, the practice of uh, killing their patients with DES. Uh, uh, and there was never any scientific basis whatsoever for its use. Actually, estrogen promotes prostate cancer and testosterone is protective. The men with the highest lifelong testosterone have the least risk of prostate cancer. Yeah, I know we've kind of talked about this because um, my father recently got diagnosed with prostate cancer and the, the common treatment is to um, chemically castrate them by lowering their testosterone to zero. And that's their common belief now is that because it's, it's thought of that it's a testosterone issue is causing the prostate cancer when in fact it's, isn't it the testosterone is being converted to estrogen that is causing yeah. the prostate cancer. And they, uh, still, yeah. they still don't, they still don't even recognize that, which is super bizarre to me. That was known scientifically 
about 60 years ago, but because of the investment in DES and estrogen, those things just never got talked about. Right. I guess the big question is, because you know, I've certainly had conversations with medical doctors who think estrogen is the greatest gift since you know, sliced bread. And if you, if you Google and you go into PubMed, you can certainly find some uh, studies showing there's benefit with estrogen therapies. And you can talk to some women, especially postmenopausal or doing that have taken estrogen and they feel better. So what is exactly happening to, to a woman who gets onto estrogen therapy and says, oh, I feel better now? It's a brain excitement. And several women who decided they wanted to withdraw from estrogen therapy, when they would stop it, they would feel lethargic and would go back on it. But I suggested drinking coffee. And that was enough to give them the feeling they wanted. It's just the excitatory a brain action that convinces women that they are energized and feeling better. Right. And, and isn't estrogen, I mean, what is its association with, I mean, isn't it, is, can it, can it, it, it increases some level of uh, lipolysis, doesn't it? It's, isn't it, there's some sort of connection with that and with insulin. Can you kind of talk about that real quick where insulin and estrogen are connected? Uh, uh, the- insulin connection? Yes. Uh, uh, in the history of oral contraceptives, uh, that was constantly a, a, a problem. Uh, they fairly early saw that uh, estrogen created insulin resistance, and uh, they uh, believed that that would lead to diabetes, among other things. Uh, and so if you look at it from the, the viewpoint of adding uh, estrogen as a, a contraceptive, it, it seems to be an insulin antagonist in some way, but it stimulates insulin production. And uh, uh, there's all kinds of uh, conflicting evidence that uh, only makes sense if you look at the context. Uh, being uh, pregnant or, or uh, the process of getting pregnant, uh, the time of months that you're exposed to it, uh, and uh, the tissue you're looking at, uh, uh, the familiar. Uh, fat hips and thighs uh, are well recognized as uh, directly responding to estrogen. The estrogen uh, increases the conversion of uh, sugar and protein and, and free fatty acids into a, a depot of fat tissue concentrated around the hips and uh, thighs mostly and definitely not in the upper body, arms and face. And an excess of cortisol or other glucocorticoid has the reverse effect 
increasing fat in the belly, uh, chest and back and face, uh, just the opposite of the estrogen. Uh, uh, but in both of these cases, uh, they are acting as uh, pro-insulin, increasing the activity of insulin in those tissues to, uh, and a major function of insulin is to uh, lay down fat, uh, to store glycogen uh, and uh, fat in the adipose tissue uh, and glycogen in the liver. Uh, so you, you have to talk about what you mean by insulin resistance. And uh, that really isn't a very good concept because every tissue you look at, it's going to have its own particular meaning. Right. So, so going into the context of insulin, because, and I'm just going to, I'm going off on many tangents right now, because why not? Um, obviously insulin is the hormone that everybody associates with uh, blood sugar and essentially facilitates glucose getting into the cell, which I'm not really sure if that's exactly what it's done, but maybe go into a little detail about, because insulin is such an important thing, especially when we go into who talk about diabetes, it's just totally correlated there. Can you just talk about a little bit about what actually insulin does and um, what is happening in the diabetic state? Is it really a result of insulin resistance or is there something else going on? Um, the, the, uh, if you isolate the pancreas cells, estrogen is a stimulant to them. Uh, progesterone can stimulate that, but it's more likely to stimulate glucagon. But once you get out in the organism, you have to look at all the other things each of the hormones is doing. Uh, and everyone seems to forget that estrogen shifts you to a fat oxidizing uh, condition in which you uh, uh, have to do something else uh, with any sugar. Uh, the, the estrogen uh, uh, tends to inhibit the oxidation of sugar and favors uh, uh, oxidizing fat, uh, but that leaves uh, the sugar uh, possibly to be disposed of as stored fat. Uh, uh, under the influence of estrogen, the, the normal woman, uh, some, some of the, most of the studies say that women have about three times as much growth hormone as men. Uh, and uh, 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 one, one study uh, using a different technique said it's actually 80 times as much as men. Uh, and uh, uh, if estrogen is supposed to be uh, anabolic for bone uh, and uh, is associated with huge excesses of growth hormone, which is also supposedly uh, anabolic to bone, uh, uh, then why is it that women have much smaller bones th than men do? Hmm. 
uh, and uh, one of the functions of growth hormone is to antagonize insulin and to increase free fatty acids. And so estrogen shifting oxidation to lipids away from sugar, it is also lipolytic, breaking down fat to burn or taking it from your diet to burn. So it's providing fatty acids to be oxidized partly by the super high amount of growth hormone blocking insulin, increasing free fatty acids in the blood. And an excess of free fatty acids is always associated with diabetes. And when you look at estrogen as a very profitable product, you have to forget all of these very big effects. During the development of birth control pills, they were recognizing the tendency of estrogen to produce diabetes. But everything which increases your free fatty acids is uh, the real uh, uh, motor behind behind insulin behind diabetes. Right. So essentially, when the diabetic state is often referred to having you know hyperglycemia or high blood sugar, that's the, that's the association you hear in the medical industry. But what you're saying is it's really a an abundance of free fatty acids in the blood, essentially, and they are inhibiting the sugar and that's why it's staying in the blood and you actually see hyperglycemia uh, yeah uh, uh, it's called the, the randall effect uh, uh, the, the uh, uh, fact that fatty acids block the ability to uh, oxidize glucose uh, and uh, the highly unsaturated fatty acids are actually the ones that are doing the most blocking of the glucose oxidation. And here's the food industry going back to the need to dispose of soybean oil because they couldn't sell it for a paint stock. And then the shift 30 years later to fish oil and the N minus three series uh, that happened to coincide with uh, the intervention of the Environmental Protection Agency that forced the fish industry to stop polluting uh, the bays and surrounding land areas uh, with dumps uh, of fish fat. Uh, and right at the time, the EFA told them to stop polluting with fish fat that came on the market as a health food. Well, that sounds about right for our community. They've done it a few times, but essentially you're saying that's how the fish oil got started. We basically had a toxic ingredient we didn't know what to do with, so let's encapsulate it and sell it as something good for you. Uh, Yeah, uh, that was how the uh, N-6, the so-called essential fatty acids, got established. 
they had already been shown uh, not to be essential and in fact to block oxygen, uh, uh, glucose oxidation. Uh, so uh, around by 1950, it was accepted that they were anti-metabolic and dangerous. But then the, uh, the seed oil industry took over the campaign and showed that by lowering cholesterol, supposedly eating the essential PUFA would protect against heart disease. It took about 15 years before they saw that it was increasing death from heart disease. Um, right. So that, so I'm basically talking about PUFOs and basically how they, I think they're the big problem when it comes to the Randall cycle, correct? They're the ones that are more inhibiting the, the glucose yeah. to be able to, to inhibit yeah. glucose oxidation. And it's primarily PUFA. PUFA is. <laughs> and they're very, very closely connected to estrogenicity. Uh, they, uh, the, the N minus uh, three DHA uh, 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 EPA and, and, and DHA, DHA I, I think are the two that are most in, increased uh, in the presence of estrogen uh, and uh, they are uh, released uh, their, their effect is increased by project by estrogen uh, and uh, their action increases the effects of estrogen. Uh, the, the, they in themselves are estrogenic, uh, but estrogen uh, increases our, our tendency to store them and uh, respond to them. Okay, so essentially the toxic effects of either the, the, the N3 and the N6, the EPA, DHA, fish oils, and also the seed oils that came later, um, those are estrogenic and have estrogenic response, but also estrogen can increase the toxic effects of those oils. Uh, yeah, and, and that whole line of research started in the 1930s. Uh, uh, the uh, animals were uh, getting sick when they got too much essential fatty acid. And it turned out that they were uh, being put into a, a highly estrogenic state. And uh, the seed oil industry just defended itself by saying uh, that that's simply a, a vitamin E deficiency state and has nothing to do with the estrogen. Uh, but in fact, a vitamin E deficiency, letting uh, the PUFA accumulate is estrogenic in itself. Uh, so right at the beginning, uh, they, they were seeing uh, the, the connection between PUFA, vitamin E deficiency, and estrogen, but uh, that didn't have a product uh, to, to be promoted. And so it was dropped out of the culture. So going back, so we're going to like take a little turn again, going back to estrogen and women that are being told that they are estrogen deficient or are being told in menopause that they need estrogen. 
um, or even younger women. I've even heard young women say on their blood labs that they are low estrogen and they are all the, all those people that I know of, they're usually having very estrogen dominant issues. So what would you advise to them is the a best approach to, to correct this estrogen deficiency, which was pro, which is probably more of a progesterone deficiency, but what, what would you suggest to them? Uh, it, usually they're hypothyroid uh, and uh, sometimes various nutritional deficiencies are behind it. Uh, uh, vitamin D and, and calcium, for example. Uh, but uh, the first thing uh, to, to be corrected is to check your body temperature, oxygen consumption, CO2 production, uh, uh, and uh, basically your metabolic rate. Because uh, if your thyroid function is low, uh, you can't uh, properly use uh, your cholesterol and vitamin A in any way, but especially for the production of progesterone, uh, your ability to metabolize vitamin A in hypothyroidism is uh, impaired, and cholesterol is massively. In 1930, I think it was 1936, uh, there were uh, studies showing a, a graph in which the cholesterol level in the blood rises directly as the metabolic rate or hypothyroidism increases a, a, a mirror image. And then when they add a thyroid supplement, the cholesterol does exactly the same thing, a mirror image of the rising thyroid metabolic rate and the falling cholesterol. Uh, it's uh, just a, a, one of the simplest reactions. If you're measuring the progesterone coming out of the ovary, uh, assuming the uh, person or animal uh, has adequate vitamin A and, and thyroid, as you measure the cholesterol production in the ovary, if you increase the amount of cholesterol in the blood going into the ovary, you directly increase the amount of progesterone coming out. So elevated cholesterol essentially means a deficiency of progesterone possibly caused by a deficiency of vitamin A and thyroid. Okay. So yeah. So just to kind of summarize your steroidal hormones or all of ours are produced via cholesterol, thyroid, and vitamin A and a deficiency in any of those can create some hormonal uh, deficiencies and uh, yeah. Uh, uh, and, and the slowdown of your metabolic rate slows your liver's ability and uh, inclination to detoxify estrogen. So again, you get not such a tight mirror image, but a basic mirror image of rising 
estrogen with falling uh, thyroid function. So that's why so many women or men in the hypothyroid state are having uh, hormonal issues showing up with high cholesterol. And certainly in a world where veganism is uh, becoming quite popular again, you can see why there's so many issues. Um, uh, uh, low cholesterol is a very serious problem. Yeah, what would, uh, what would create someone to have low cholesterol? I hope you're enjoying this episode uh, so far. It's just so jam-packed with amazing information. Ray is just so incredible and he shares his information so freely, which is, I I think is just incredible. And um, Kate messaged me saying that she really wants to do a monthly podcast with him on different topics. So um, hopefully he will do that with us. But I just wanted to quickly jump in and talk about Saturay's new organic beef liver capsules and our pure oyster capsules. So we actually did the first drop of them last week and they sold out within an hour, which was just incredible. Um, But we've totally restocked them now. We had so many people messaging me going, kitty, kitty, when are they going to be back in stock? But we've fully restocked now, so you shouldn't um, miss out. But, you know, we just get such amazing feedback on our liver, liver capsules. And look, if you love liver and you can find good fresh beef liver, absolutely eat it. Um, I think it's quite an acquired uh, taste. And I think that everyone should be eating um, fresh liver and oysters. But if you're, you know, like me who hates liver or you just can't get it or you can't get the oysters or it's just not that convenient for you to take, um, our Saturate A-plus liver capsules, organic liver capsules are non-defatted. They're freeze-dried, additive-free, and they're 100% Australian organic um, liver from grass-fed cows. Now, liver naturally contains a broad spectrum of nutrients, including preformed vitamin A, B vitamins, copper, CoQ10, iron, and choline. Um, and our oyster tablets are oyster capsules, I should say, are sourced. Our oysters are sourced from Tasmania, so the beautiful, clean waters of Tasmania. And we actually freeze dry them ourselves. So that just helps to retain more of the nutrients. So these are equally nutrient dense. Um, you know, they're loaded with zinc, B12, manganese, selenium, and vitamin D and copper. So they're just an amazing, amazing superfood. So I'll drop the link in the show notes uh, for you to purchase them as well as a discount code that will give you a just a small discount. So I hope you're enjoying the uh, episode so far. Let's get back to it. And, and I have seen, and I, you know, and, th- and this seems to be something that has some, I, I know somebody that went through some cancer treatment and now due to the, the radiation, they have a, a heart issue and be, due to that heart issue, their doctors want them to have cholesterol like a hundred. I mean, <laughs> because I guess they're afraid of some sort of artery blockage because they have a heart issue. So it, I mean, is that, there, is there any really scientific understanding of that? Is that safe? Um, I, 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 I knew about 40 years ago, a husband and wife, medical doctors who had, I think it was 85 and 120 levels of cholesterol that they bragged about from eating a vegan diet. Mm-hmm. And I asked about them just a few years after that. They were in their 30s and they were both dead. So obviously low cholesterol is not particularly good. 
Um, but is there is there any scientific backing for obviously because I've seen it in, in a lot of people that have been diagnosed with some sort of heart issue, their doctors really want them to keep very low cholesterol. Is is there some scientific uh, backing for that, or is that uh, just uh, there? Like there are thousands and thousands of uh, medical publications you can find on uh, PetNet, but they're all uh, uh, wrong. Well, I, I would probably agree with you with that. Um, so essentially, there's 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 no real basis of it. So, so for so for those listening and 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 their cholesterol is low, what would the suggestion be um, to help bring uh, to, that up to a to, healthy to level? Uh, irritation in the intestine uh, turns off uh, uh, cholesterol production when it's uh, very intense. It, it, it is poisoning both the intestine and the liver uh, to the extent that they don't have the energy uh, to, to make cholesterol. So you're saying an, an irritation in the intestines will create, could, could create low cholesterol. I, I don't think I've ever heard that before. A vegan diet, for example, uh, can, can be so irritating to the liver and uh, intestine. Uh, endotoxin rises uh, and will block cholesterol synthesis. So, so then again, it's, so if this is happening to someone and they have low cholesterol and obviously they probably might, they're probably having some hormonal issues, what would be your uh, top three things to say to them to help improve cholesterol and hormone production? Um, Orange juice and milk are very helpful to reduce the inflammation. Both of them are very good sources of flavonoids, anti-inflammatory chemicals, and they provide the sugar is the raw material that you need, but you've got to get the inflammation down uh, while providing the sugar. I see. Okay. So milk and OJ for the flavonoids, sugar needed to help get the inflammation down. And then what else could they do? Uh, uh, the, the milk has various anti-inflammatory things. Uh, just keeping a high uh, intake of calcium is it, it, very important. But uh, not necessarily uh, just a calcium supplement. Right. And so you're saying an in, in increase in calcium for inflammation and because you want to ultimately decrease inflammation to increase cholesterol production. Mm -hmm. Okay. And since obviously vitamin A is super important, what would you suggest for people to consume to help with that vitamin? Uh, 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 minimal amount or uh, necessary amount of, of thyroid hormone. Uh, it's only uh, when you uh, get super high thyroid activity that you can uh, lower the cholesterol below normal. But uh, if you don't have enough thyroid for good liver metabolism, it's one of the things providing the energy to make the cholesterol. Okay, so 
and I think that's kind of important because if we're talking about low or high cholesterol, thyroid is important either way, correct? <laughs> okay. And I mean, for somebody that is kind of uh, for listening and I mean, what would you suggest? I mean, do, what, do you think most people need to be on a, an additional thyroid support or can they just improve their overall metabolic health via food stress reduction? Um, what are your thoughts for most individuals? Uh, e even though you uh, perfect your diet, uh, there is still going to be uh, uh, the, the stored PUFA, for example, uh, that will keep blocking your metabolism. Uh, so I, I think it's very important to uh, correct things as quickly as possible, uh, getting gradually under the right level of thyroid uh, functioning. Uh, and uh, uh, a lot of people uh, uh, want to get, get a good metabolic rate quicker uh, than possible. Uh, they, they want to start right out at a, a working uh, ideal level of thyroid. Uh, but it takes the body weeks and weeks uh, uh, to adjust. Uh, every time you uh, 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 raise your uh, T3 level in blood, for example, uh, it will increase your sensitivity to adrenaline. Uh, and uh, so to uh, prevent uh, the overexcited adrenaline action, uh, it, it takes weeks uh, of adapting to a slowly increasing uh, level of thyroid. I see. So is that one of the reasons why some people who will take T3 directly feel super high adrenaline? Is it just they're taking too much? Yeah. Uh, the, the low thyroid person, uh, I've seen publications that they have 30 times the average daily output of uh, uh, adrenaline. Uh, I saw one person uh, with a 40 times normal uh, daily output. <laughs> and uh, just the smallest amount of uh, thyroid supplement, uh, uh, suddenly they start becoming sensitive to that excess of adrenaline. Uh, and so you have to uh, take it for a week or two uh, or reach the level that uh, increases your sensitivity. Uh, give it time uh, to uh, drop your adrenaline. Uh, and, uh, uh, really, if you're doing it carefully, uh, you can probably do it in four or five months. Oh, wow. So for somebody that is in that kind of hyperadrenaline state, because I certainly have seen that when people try to take some sort of thyroid and it just, they feel horrible taking a some sort of thyroid supplement. Would you suggest then it's certainly wise to work on their diet first, making sure they have enough uh, energy, protein, and so forth before they engage in any sort of thyroid medication? Yeah, uh, magnesium is one of the most important nutrients because when your thyroid function is low and you're running on adrenaline, the cells are not making ATP quickly in the hypothyroid state. 
uh, and the ATP is what holds magnesium in your cells. Uh, and so the intracellular magnesium uh, is uh, always low in a hypothyroid person. Uh, and uh, if you take uh, sometimes even a, as little as a, a 30 milligram dose of uh, armor thyroid, the person will get heart pains, spasms in their coronary arteries. Because uh, if you enliven your whole body, the muscles uh, will uh, suck up the uh, available magnesium and make your blood level drop as the thyroid goes up. And so taking a magnesium supplement along with the thyroid uh, will prevent the heart pains and, uh, and uh, other signs of magnesium deficiency. I see. And do you have a suggestion? Because <clears throat> certainly everyone will now be asking how much magnesium, what type of magnesium? Uh, milk will provide enough magnesium when you're getting enough calcium. Uh, but uh, uh, there are lots of other sources make uh, uh, magnesium carbonate is good except uh, the physical form of it uh, can irritate the intestine uh, and so lots of people get uh, headaches and uh, congestion uh, from magnesium supplements uh, uh, magnesium glycinate is the only one I haven't heard many people getting headaches from Mm -hmm. And it would just be a hundred, two hundred milligrams. Is that kind of the suggestion, or, or uh, yeah, that's enough. To, that, that, that's enough to make a difference. Okay. Um, so, and I hope you, do you still have time, Ray? I know we're we yep. got a little bit. Yep. Fantastic. Okay, so kind of taking a turn because I know a lot of women are still on. Hey, I'm going into menopause. Um, my doctor's again telling me I have low estrogen. For those women, what, what, what is the suggested uh, protocol? What would you suggest? Is, are they, do they need to get on progesterone? Or is it, again, they need to work on their health and supporting their system cholesterol production, maybe thyroid? Like what would be the, the suggestion to these women that so many of them are coming up and saying, my doctor's saying, I need estrogen. Uh, yeah, a little bit of everything. Uh, good nutrition, uh, uh, re reducing uh, the, the worst stresses, uh, not necessarily uh, uh, hormonal, but uh, just uh, making your life easier so that you don't... Uh, uh, so much burden on your liver uh, and uh, the, the thyroid, uh, vitamin A, uh, uh, calcium, vitamin D, uh, 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 all of the anti-inflammatory, uh, basically anabolic substances uh, are helpful. And what about men because obviously we know men produce estrogen too and and from what i understand later in life men can actually have higher levels of estrogen than even women 
So uh, yeah, what about the, that? The, the secular man is uh, the higher as estrogen is. Uh, and in old age, it's common uh, for a man's estrogen to be higher than a woman's. What would be the symptoms of that for a man? Uh, 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 development of breast tissue is one gynecomastia and uh, uh, slowing metabolism, uh, uh, emotional changes, uh, becoming uh, uh, depressed or anxious. And, and with men that have these symptoms, um, is it safe? Because obviously you can, you can dose women with progesterone. Is it safe to dose men with progesterone? Uh, yeah, I, I've, for, for uh, acute problems, uh, uh, for example, a traumatic injury will uh, cause a huge surge of estrogen. Uh, and so for any trauma, uh, progesterone uh, is a, a general antidote to the injury, whether it's burn injury or fracture concussion or whatever. Uh, uh, migraines, uh, uh, I've used it myself uh, uh, when I unwittingly became hypothyroid from uh, drinking fluoridated water. Mm. Uh, a big single dose, uh, maybe as much as 100 milligrams at once, right in the middle of a horrible zero, uh, horrible uh, migraine uh, uh, blocked uh, the uh, f first the pain and then the nausea and the visual effects uh, all within about two or three minutes uh, from maximum migraine to absolute peace and sleepiness in the space of three minutes uh, uh, it's happened twice at intervals of uh, two or three years, and uh, that's similar to uh, its effect in uh, uh, epilepsy. I've uh, just just a week or so ago, uh, um, and wrote about his uh, son uh, who was having uh, nocturnal seizures every night, uh, and uh, he started taking. I think he said thirty milligrams. Uh, of progesterone at bedtime, and starting that night, he didn't have another uh, night seizure uh, for uh, about a month, I think it was, and he didn't take his uh, progesterone at bedtime uh, and uh, had a night uh, seizure, but he, he said it didn't have the after effects that uh, the seizures normally did. Uh, but uh, I've known several uh, youngish men uh, who uh, had been diagnosed as chronically epileptic, uh, who cured the whole thing with, with progesterone. So for men, is it, is it safe to take continually? Is, would there, is there side effects to possibly taking it for men? Uh, well, uh, progesterone is unusual in that uh, a dose acts as a primer for your uh, production of your own progesterone. Uh, and uh, so uh, for uh, more than 40 years, I've been 
saying that progesterone replacement isn't the right idea because one dose of progesterone should stop the symptoms immediately and correct your body so that it makes its own progesterone. It activates thyroid function and secretion and helps with the reducing whatever stress is initiating the excitatory processes. In arthritis of different kinds, I've seen the same thing. A single dose, for example, a friend said every afternoon working at his, his bench, his knee would swell up. He showed me his knee looked like a pink football. You couldn't see the train itself. And it was so painful he couldn't work. And just the application of one bottle of progesterone that we got at the drugstore covering his whole leg, that he never had his afternoon arthritis again. And over the next, um, I guess it was 45 or 50 years, I knew him. He never had arthritis again, just one dose. And uh, our, our plumber was crippled, could hardly get up the steps one step at a time, and said he was about to retire because his cartilage was crumbled and unrepairable. And I gave him a bottle of progesterone, told him to rub it all over his leg. He went out to his truck, put on the progesterone, and went about his work. And about an hour later, on one of his trips out to his truck, he came up the steps more, more quickly and was walking more smoothly. And I mentioned, he said he, he thought it was better. But the next morning, all the work had been done. The next morning, he knocked on the door and said, I just wanted to show you this. And he ran down the stairs and back up the stairs. And I never gave him any more progesterone, but several, first I asked his wife a few months later how his knee was. And there was a long silence. And she said, oh, he did have a bad knee, didn't he? And about 10 years later, he was still working. And I asked him if he had ever had more trouble with his knee. He had forgotten all about it. Didn't didn't acknowledge that he ever had a knee problem. Wow. So for most women, certainly that I know, um, it it doesn't seem like a single dose is ever the magic. It, it seems that they, they do it continually. So if, if a woman has to constantly take progesterone. Um, it, it, means she's, a, it means she's hypothyroid or malnourished. Okay. So, so essentially what you're saying is someone shouldn't have to. They should be able to take smaller dosages or a big dose or maybe not as often. And if they're properly supported, 
they should they shouldn't have to continue using it. Uh, yeah. Okay. So for those women um, that are feeling that hey, if I don't have my progesterone, I don't feel well, then you're suggesting that it's either hey, you might need to work on thyroid or taking a thyroid or making sure you get it more calories uh, or nutrients. And, and and checking your vitamin D and drinking uh, one or two quarts of milk. Okay. Um, and for anybody that is thinking about vitamin D or has uh, thoughts that um, they don't know if they should take it, I definitely recommend listening to the podcast that we did with Dr. Pete on vitamin D. Um, I do have some other questions about progesterone because there's lots of thoughts because progesterone essentially um, in our body it can convert into cortisol or estrogen. Um, uh, yeah, the cortisol issue is pretty pretty clearly defined. Uh, uh, when you take a big dose of progesterone, it inhibits your uh, adrenal production of cortisol and lowers your ACTH, so the pituitary stops uh, 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 supporting uh, adrenal progesterone production. Uh, so it's uh, that's a good evidence of its anti-glucocorticoid uh, uh, action. Uh, but Hans Selye, in defining uh, the, the effects of each of the steroids, uh, uh, removed the animal's adrenals uh, and saw the uh, effects of stress uh, within a few days of having the adrenals removed, uh, a very slight stress would cause them to die. But you notice that, that the pregnant females uh, uh, didn't die from uh, the absence of the adrenal glands uh, until they uh, bore a litter, uh, and then the first stress uh, would kill them. Uh, so that gave him the idea that uh, progesterone uh, might be substituting for the adrenal glands. And he found uh, he would remove the adrenals and then give them a supplement of progesterone, and they lived out their normal uh, life, uh, no signs of uh, adrenal deficiency, uh, showing that progesterone has protective anti-cortisol uh, actions at the high end uh, and uh, protective uh, aldosterone-like uh, e effects uh, at the, uh, the other end. So I think what you're saying is that progesterone, when cortisol is needed, will convert into cortisol. And uh, if, uh, no, no, it has no. intrinsic. Has, has or intrinsic, acts like cortisol. Uh, yeah, and it has intrinsic effects of uh, all of the other. Uh, aldosterone, for example, uh, progesterone is acting in place of uh, aldosterone, it can even tend to lower the uh, any aldosterone you have, but uh, with the adrenal gland, gland gone, uh, there won't be any uh, aldosterone, and so the, the progesterone itself is intrinsically uh, balancing the minerals the way aldosterone should. 
I, okay. So because, right, so our, our adrenals will produce our um, progesterone, certainly as women, we obviously produce it during ovulation, but also when we are not ovulating, we produce progesterone via our adrenal glands. Is it produced anywhere else besides that? Progesterone? Uh-huh. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah the, the brain and the skin. Uh, uh, the, the skin is, is a pretty big source of progesterone. Uh, and the brain, uh, uh, they haven't tried skinning animals to prove that it's all coming from the brain. Uh, but if you remove the, the adrenals and the ovaries, uh, you, you can see the DHEA and the progesterone tend to be stabilized to some extent. Not enough to make you resistant to stress, but there is a big boost in DHEA and a small increase in progesterone. Interesting. There are some um, medical doctors uh, that I have read that, that, that say that they're trying to talk against everybody that people shouldn't supplement progesterone. And one of the reasons, n not everybody, but they're saying one of the reasons that you might not uh, take progesterone is if you're already in a stress state, that progesterone can increase your cortisol. Is no, that a no, correct statement? It, no, it's always anti so if somebody is, so I know of somebody that was taking a very, very high amount of progesterone, uh, two to 300 milligrams. And after six months of doing that, um, she was getting kind of hyperadrenaline uh, symptoms. And then when she stopped taking the progesterone, the symptoms seemed to be alleviated. What exactly could have been happening in her? I'm not sure. <laughs> so and she was also taking a thyroid medication too. So, and she, she decreased that as well, but the doctor assumed the, what it was, was the excessive amount of progesterone that she was consuming or taking because it seemed to correct once she um, stopped taking such a high amount. So I thought maybe it was just that her body wasn't even utilizing it properly because uh, it was such a long time taking it. Did she take it continuously or, or she was taking uh, some continuously? Yes. She was taking some, even, even though she was still having a period, she was taking some in the beginning of the cycle. She would take more uh, after ovulation because um, initially it was helping her feel better. And then it, and it then it wasn't. Uh, uh, the, the reason the body interrupts it every two weeks is that continuous uh, exposure uh, to uh, your, your own progesterone uh, is uh, gradually uh, activating the liver's excretory uh, enzymes. Uh, and so uh, after a, a month or two of continuous progesterone, it leaves your body very, very quickly. Uh, and uh, uh, so you'll, uh, a dose of it will have uh, a much reduced effect uh, and uh, not last very long. Okay. So essentially because she never took a break, um, basically it was just when she took, but why would, so why would getting off of it 
feel better then? Was it that her body was becoming more sensitive to it? Of her uh, own it, progesterone? Yeah, the, the liver just takes two weeks to recover. Uh, uh, so, yep, that's about what it took her uh, to feel better. Uh, yeah, as soon as the liver stops its exaggerated excretion, uh, then your natural progesterone cycle is going to work. Okay, yeah. So, so I think that the something to just come from is that yes, you know, progesterone is good. It's better to produce it. Um, you should, if you need it, a single or a you know a just low doses can be the thing that helps. And if you need it continually, then you probably need to look at other things that could possibly be creating your issues. Is that a correct statement? Uh, uh, yeah, I, I think of it as as a practice for, for getting the stress down and restoring your natural uh, cycling. What about for the women that um, try progesterone therapy and it makes them feel worse? Maybe initially they, they start it with their cycle. Maybe they're taking it in their luteal phase um, because maybe they're either, maybe they're not actually ovulating. And so they start taking progesterone to kind of mimic a, a normal cycle, but it makes them feel worse. What could be happening? Um, it's important to uh, watch what's actually happening, uh, checking your temperature, uh, pulse rate, uh, uh, any other uh, signs that you can measure, uh, uh, the, the quality of sleep and appetite and so on. Uh, the, Some, some women think they're taking it. Many years ago, the idea of taking drugs on the skin or through a little patch, an estrogen patch or a, a, a travel motion sickness patch was about the, some as small as a a nickel or dime, some about like a, a quarter. Uh, and I, I knew quite a few women who said progesterone didn't do anything at all. Uh, I, I put it on my wrist, I asked how much, and they said uh, an area about the size of a quarter. Uh, and, uh, uh, those those people uh, believe they were uh, taking uh, progesterone, but uh, essentially getting zero uh, change in their body. Uh, so it's important to go by uh, actual signs, uh, such as temperature and pulse rate. It should increase the stroke volume of your heart, and so uh, decrease the frequency uh, of the heartbeat in on average, uh, 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 while, while maintaining your temperature at a higher level. Okay, so if they're taking it and, th and it's working properly, they should have an increase in temperature and pulse. Uh, yeah. Okay, and so like, again, if, if they are taking it and they all of a sudden feel worse, my understanding was that maybe that progesterone was pulling estrogen from the tissue? Could that be happening? And that's why they were feeling worse? Except that it comes out in the detoxified form. Uh, and, and 
uh, it's not not harmful when it's uh, being de detoxified by progesterone. Oh, so the estrogen in the tissue that is being pulled from the tissue it isn't harmful. So that that will not create a estrogenic response then. Right? Uh, so yeah, because it's in the water soluble, uh, the estrogen uh, activates the enzymes inside the cell uh, to stop producing it and to make it water soluble. Uh, and that causes it to leave the cell in a watery soluble form uh, and in that form, it doesn't get into other cells, uh, so it can't act on you, uh, but it tends to go right out through the kidneys. I see. I see. So, so the women that, aren't, that end up taking some sort of progesterone and, like I said, don't feel well, then what is happening to those women? Most often they are using it in inadequate amounts on their skin. Whenever I've been present and watched how it's being used, I never saw it fail or, or make anyone feel worse. I see. Okay. So, so essentially, you're saying maybe they're just not getting enough, and that could be the reason that it's not working, and that could be creating uh, issues. Uh, yeah. Uh, sometimes, uh, usually after I had given a talk, uh, someone would. Uh, come up after the talk and uh, want a private co conversation about their problem. And so I would uh, give them some progesterone and, and sit there and, and watch their reactions. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, you, you could see it happening, but in some cases it went up since I was there to see that they weren't getting drunk or going to become unconscious. I let them keep taking a big dip on their finger at 50 to 100 milligrams at a time and just watching. Mm -hmm. And it would often get up to two or 300 milligrams, not feeling any effect at all. Mm -hmm. Then with, with one more dip, suddenly the problem would just totally disappear, uh, uh, a radical uh, switch, uh, which would be in uh, uh, blood vessel problems or, or depression. Uh, it's a, a transition that happens in just a matter of seconds uh, or a minute or two. Hmm. So they just kept dosing and dosing, dosing, nothing, nothing, nothing. And then finally at 200 or a high dose, it just, yeah. boom, that it worked. And, and you're saying it's because there, there could have been a blood vessel is, issue? Um, yeah, I, I didn't have any tests or uh, way of knowing, but uh, it was apparently that they were under the extreme influence of uh, stress hormones uh, that were uh, controlling their, their circulation, uh, brain circulation or uh, hand circulation, uh, any part of the body. Mm -hmm. Suddenly the circulation would uh, be restored and their, their functions would uh, be normalized. Hmm. Yeah, so I, I think for those who are listening, I, Ray was talking about when 
I think to, to find the magic dose for you, I think you normally recommend, don't you normally recommend about like 10 milligrams every 10 to 15 minutes until you have symptoms reduced? Uh, yeah, yeah. If, if the person isn't very sure of what its effects are going to be, it's, it's good to set aside a block of time so you can patiently pay attention to what, how you're feeling and watching. Uh, and, uh, one thing to watch is the veins on the back of your hand. Uh, they'll uh, typically be uh, bulging and uh, feel fairly hard. Uh, and as you take the small amounts of, of progesterone, uh, at some point, suddenly the veins will disappear. Mm-hmm. Yes, the, 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 the vein thing in the hand, because I think you've always said if you raise your hand up you, and then raise it down and you show bulging veins, then that is a progesterone deficiency. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I got two more questions and then we'll be done. Um, can you just give a, a brief summary of all the things that progesterone can actually do and help people with? And again, this can be your own and that's why it's so important. But as far as is how it helps with things like blood sugar control, uh, sleep, um, and so forth? Um, if you name some physiological or anatomical problem, maybe it'll be something that I haven't heard the progesterone benefits. But uh, for example, uh, two people who had grease burns that in a flash, uh, turned their leg uh, red and looked like it was going to blister. Uh, getting, uh, since they had a, some progesterone at hand, uh, immediately uh, applying the progesterone, uh, the, the major burn simply disappeared. No, no lingering pain or blistering. And uh, uh, several other traumas, uh, people happen to have progesterone on hand. And just the most ridiculous damage could disappear in a very short time if they got the progesterone in time. Mm-hmm. So basically, progesterone can be utilized for uh, pretty much everything you're saying. <laughs> And I have seen it being used, I've seen it be used remarkably well for a variety of different things. So, um, it, it, and it's quite safe. I, I mean, it's pretty hard to OD on progesterone, correct? Uh, uh, yeah, well, once I did it accidentally, uh, someone was making uh, margaritas and thought they were putting in a spoonful of pregnenolone and got the wrong container and put in probably 4,000 or 5,000 milligrams of progesterone and probably had only about 1,000 milligrams mixed with alcohol. And suddenly I couldn't tell exactly where my hands and feet were. (laughs) And for about half an hour, I watched my feet when I walked. Oh, 
So Bray OD'd on too much progesterone, almost. Because uh, um, you weren't getting it in the powdered form, obviously. But um, yeah, so that was a little different than the stuff I used to do. But um, very interesting. Okay, final question, Ray, is <clears throat> what is the basic difference between your natural progesterone and a progestin that the medical community likes to prescribe? Um. The, the reason the progestins exist is that drug companies were aware of the success of estrogen because of the variety of problems that women have. And they knew that progesterone couldn't be patented. And so they added a little change to it the way you make a new drug that you can patent it's just by some uh, random change uh, not, not not designed intelligently in any way but uh, if it still passes the test of being a progestin uh, and it happens that testosterone uh, passes the test uh, that they use to define a progestin uh, so the definition of a progestin is that it causes a particular kind of change in the uterus. But the reason they wanted to have their own patented product was simply that they could claim that it was like progesterone or substituting for it. But uh, one of the ways they uh, got it to uh, be preferred uh, over actual progesterone uh, was to claim that natural progesterone is destroyed in the stomach by the stomach acid. Mm. And so their product could be taken as a pill. Uh, but uh, one of the processes of refining progesterone is to boil it in hydrochloric acid. Mm. So uh, it was a total uh, whole cloth invention, but it, it served to uh, shift the medical industry towards prescribing a, a, a defined, defined pill rather than the uh, natural hormone, which isn't patented. And so essentially medical doctors are taught in medical school all about progestins and not really ever discussing natural progesterone. Is that pretty much how they're being taught? Yeah, they're, they're all harmful. Uh, uh, a lot of them uh, were, were very estrogenic. Quite a few of them were androgenic. Uh, women would grow whiskers uh, from them. Uh, but uh, anything that is chemically not exactly progesterone is going to have anti-progesterone effects, uh, not to mention the uh, androgenic or estrogenic effects, uh, or even the glucocorticoid-like effects. Uh, uh, so any uh, progesterone, so-called, other than natural progesterone, uh, is going to have anti progesterone effects. 
So if you were going to tell any woman going through pre or post or, or menopausal, um, what would be your advice if they, if their doctor said you need some progestin and some estrogen? You need which? You need estrogen and a progestin and that's going to get you feeling better. If I didn't know better, I would ask the doctor what he meant by a progestin and why not natural pure progesterone and whether he knew about the toxic effects of all of the so-called progestins. Yes. Yeah, so I think the overall message is um, we don't need any excess. Most women don't need any. Well, let me ask this question real quick. Does, does any woman ever need additional estrogen? I've never run across a situation where you would suspect that there could be a deficient estrogen production because any sickness or injury to just about any part of your body and almost any type of cell can produce estrogen. It's an injury and sickness reaction, trying to create a new life to get out of the sickness. And so anything you do to hurt the organism is going to activate estrogen production in one or many parts of the body. So that would be a no. I would guess if somebody had maybe a, a pituitary issue, um, I know someone that had a hypothalamic um, uh, obesity and they, I, I think they had a non-working pituitary. So they were young. Um, I'm guessing that person might need estrogen for growth. Uh, no, because uh, the stress, uh, so, so many things turn on uh, aromatase and mm -hmm. the activating enzymes. Uh, 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 the tissues are autonomous in their ability to react to stress by increasing estrogen. So, so a woman that has non-functioning ovaries or doesn't have the proper communication between um, the pituitary and the ovaries um, and isn't producing estrogen via the ovaries doesn't need to be even put on any sort of estrogen therapy to, to, to create a cycle? Um, it, uh, they're probably overlooking the actual estrogen that's there. But the shock, one of Anselmi's studies showed that estrogen imitated the shock reaction, the first phase of the stress reaction. Mm -hmm. So estrogen's effects are shock like effects. And so you can shock the body with a dose of estrogen. And sometimes that can rouse the tissues defensively to 
start producing more uh, progesterone. But in many cases, if you don't have the uh, re resilience to make enough progesterone, uh, what your body does to respond to one of these shocking doses of estrogen is to increase the androgens. Uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome, for example, mm -hmm. uh, you, you can uh, create it in dogs and cows uh, by uh, giving an injection of gonadotropins, uh, increasing uh, all of the gonadal uh, hormones, uh, and uh, removing their thyroid gland. So the combination of, of uh, activating especially estrogen and androgens against a low thyroid background is what is enough to bring on the polycyclic ovary syndrome. And in that syndrome, the androgens are high, but the progesterone is low. Mm -hmm. And then the androgens are dial androstenediol, DHEA, and testosterone are all sources for the stress issues elsewhere to make estrogen. Mm. Okay, so yeah. A, a combination of androgen-estrogen poisoning, which can be brought on by the estrogen shock. I see. So just to sum that up, it... PCOS is normally characterized by excess androgens, but that's certainly how it's described in the medical world and also maybe some sort of insulin resistance that goes along with it. But essentially it, it, you're saying that it's an increased amount of, of androgens, but usually those are converting into the estrogens and that's creating the issues. Uh, yeah, and the failure to produce enough progesterone was really part of the uh, problem, but we'll let it go down that pathway. Gotcha. So sum that up, estrogen is bad. Not bad, I want to say, I don't ever say bad. So estrogen, excess estrogen is certainly not what you want. Uh, and progesterone is like the superhero of, of all of it. Yes? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I love when you agree with me. Um, well, Dr. Pete, that was awesome. Kitty, are you still there? I know I like love to take oh, over this. So, no, it's so good. I'm here and listening and learning so much. That was amazing. Yeah, Ray, that was, I, 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 Kitty's, I always get very honored that Kitty lets me come on her show and <sighs> I get to talk to you and she just lets me take it because I, I'm I'm such the super fan. So <laughs> you're so I appreciate okay. you. you come back with such great questions and really thorough. And, and it's always well thought out and logical. Well, think, that, anyway. that's only because Ray has all, you have the plethora of information that I'm mm. so grateful that you are willing to share with us ongoing basis. So I thank mm. you so much for coming again today. Oh, okay, thank you. Awesome. Thanks, Ray. Take Thanks care. So much, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye.